0: there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from P.S. Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest.
1: Welcome everyone to another episode of Books with Hooks. We have three query letters to get through today and we're super excited. Carly, will you kick us off with your
2: letter first? All right, guys, this is a little bit of a long one. Bear with me. Here we go. And I'm going to read it exactly as it was written. So here we go. Dr. Ms. Waters, I'm writing to you seeking representation for my 97,000 word novel, Sweet, Not Lasting, a work of contemporary fiction which explores the intricacies of college aged female friendships and how they shape our identity in the turbulent and often painful period. That today's women face between youth and adulthood this novel's penetration of the harsh complexities of the contemporary female experience through a deeply character-driven lens echoes themes explored by dolly alderton ghosts anna hope expectations and sally rooney normal people Margot mason is exactly where she wants to be a junior at nyu hailing from a wealthy long island upbringing she's not only a successful business student well on her way to an early degree and a secure job, but also surrounded by her carefully curated group of beautiful, successful, and admiration-worthy friends. The only thing holding her back is the fact that her savings account from high school is reaching its last dregs and won't sustain her busy social calendar much longer. On a whim, Margot picks up a side job at a local cafe, which, though more demanding than she originally envisioned, helps bolster her social funds appropriately. Meanwhile, she begins dating a handsome, wealthy actor, Pax. She meets in a chance encounter at a midtown club, a relationship which opens to both her and her friends' entrance into a sophisticated social scene that starkly contrasts their previous two years of cramped and sweaty dorm room parties. Finally, as she settles into her role as keyholder to this new world, all the elements of the life she has always wanted for herself fall into place. Yet soon her relationship with Pax becomes fraught with manipulations and subtle abuses, and it becomes increasingly clear to Margot whether, if it comes down to it, her friends will choose her or him and, by extension, the privileged world he represents. When a harsh betrayal reveals her friendships are not what she had thought, Margot is forced to examine who she is without the superficial facade she has built up around herself. What ends up saving her, in more ways than one, will be the community she finds in her quirky and eccentric cafe workers, people who she had for months barely acknowledged and yet nonetheless offer her the promise of family. For the first time in her life, Margot begins to experience what it feels like to belong, not as a result of fitting in, but from understanding and more than anything acceptance. In the process of learning to accept that love fundamentally shifts the once small and privileged way she realizes she has always viewed the world around her. Sweet, not lasting, examines the raw and sometimes despairing ways in which the male gaze maintains its power over women and their connections to one another, even in contemporary society. Confused, anxious, and at times infuriating, Margot's character portrays what it means to be a woman in the delicate period between youth and adulthood, searching for belonging in all the wrong places. A long-time New York City resident, I currently reside in Park Slope, Brooklyn, a photographer, writer, and art historian. My deepest and most passionate love has always been storytelling across mediums, having received a BFA in Contemporary Art History from the University of Washington and an MFA in Museology from the University of Amsterdam. As a reader, I am particularly drawn to stories that highlight the experiences of women and the many ways in which the world can tear apart the experience of female-identifying individuals bit by bit beneath the surface of what appears to approach equality sweet not lasting is my first novel a story that came to me nearly a decade ago which has been finally put into words for the first time i write to you with deep gratitude for the opportunity and hope very much to receive the chance to send you my full manuscript thank you
1: carly what was the word
2: count on that long query letter and what did you think about it all right so this one clocks in at 661 words I think this might take the cake in terms of the longest query letter we might have ever had on the podcast. I'm just throwing that out there. That might, that might win for longest query letter ever. All right. So Dr. Ms. Waters, I would love to have had a PhD. I don't have a PhD. I have a master's degree though. So maybe that doctor was left in the query letter for somebody else. And that is perfectly fine. Okay. In terms of the title, it's, not in caps. And we really need our query letter in caps, especially because this title has a comma in it, like sweet comma, not lasting. We really just need to know what exactly is the title here. So that should be in all caps. All right. So, I mean, let's just look at the big picture here, which is it's really long. And why is it really long? Definitely we're exploring a ton of themes and we're not focusing so much on the conflict and the hook. To me, it definitely feels like the hook is buried. To me, again, I haven't read the whole book, but to me, the query letter hook is probably the fact that she gets into a relationship with an abusive older man. That to me seems like the hook. And there's repercussions across her social circle for that. So again, this is is what we should be focusing on. Because really, the first page of the query letter, the stakes are incredibly low, which is she comes from a wealthy Long Island upbringing and is just running out of some pocket change at NYU. I mean, those are pretty low stakes in my opinion. So really need to reframe as this coming of age story, you know, getting into relationship that's unhealthy, that type of stuff. Like that to me has much higher, higher stakes here. The The main conflict is pretty far buried down in terms of the actual word count in this query letter. So there, There is a lot of repetition as well, like if we get at the top and at the bottom, you know, this delicate period between youth and adulthood, searching for belonging. I mean, belonging is just a theme. Again, we need to be focusing on our plot and we hear it twice. So the repetition really isn't doing us any favors here. So I think we got to start this one from the from the ground up. I think we need to start from scratch here. I think there's a lot of stuff that's working really well. I think the comps are on point, but I don't really get the sense of I truly understand what I'm going to get from this book because it's quite a Mandarin query letter. Thank you, Carly. And what were in the opening pages? We start with chapter one, June 2014. We start with our main character packing up after living with her roommates throughout her college years. I wasn't sure how many years she had lived with these friends. It seems like it had been a number of years. She's saying about how she's, you know, she's packing up. There's lots of kind of secrets. She's not really telling them that she's leaving. She's waiting for them to go, like, leave to kind of go out for the night. And then she's going to pack up and leave without saying goodbye, that they would be surprised that she was doing that. And then we move into chapter two. October 2013 so we're going back in time it's a bit of a frame narrative that we're going to kind of understand the falling out of this friendship essentially and what happened the friend group is on the subway they are headed out to a Giants game and we're just kind of understanding them on the subway what's going on and she is checking her phone and looking for text messages from PAX and her friends are like why you keep looking at messages from your phone you know try to play it cool that sort of thing and that's where we end. I am often guilty of spending too much time on my phone. What were your thoughts on the execution? All right. So for a very meandering query letter, I honestly wasn't sure what to expect from the pages because sometimes if it's a meandering query letter, there can be meandering pages. But I want to read you guys the first line. It's an excellent, excellent first line. Great word choice, which is the unzipped suitcase gapes at her like an open mouth. I love that line. I really got a strong visual for... That idea of, like, the mouth could be, obviously, like, the zipper teeth, right? Like, those are called teeth, the little pieces of the zipper. Like, in that openness, it could be open as in, like... You know, open hearts or open wounds. Like, there's just so much of the mouth metaphor. I don't know. I just thought it was so like, specific and I could really visualize whether it was like a duffel bag or, you know, trying to close a suitcase that wasn't closing the way you wanted. I don't know. I just thought that was a really strong, interesting visual. So I really liked that line. I like that she was moving out without telling the roommates. I thought that was a really interesting choice, but definitely wordy in terms of explaining the relationship and really doubling down on what we doubled down in the query letter, which is, it says they believe in everything and nothing at all at the same time, the way that only makes sense in the delicate period between youth and adulthood. So in these sample pages between the query letter and these pages, we've talked about this delicate period between youth and adulthood so many times. And I really just want to see it reenacted through plot and elevated through character instead of being told that. So really need to understand what is happening in terms of the physicality of moving, because there's a lot of just like, like sitting there and pondering thoughts when really I would have just loved to like actually see her moving around physically putting stuff into the luggage to really focus on again a sense of flow and a sense of movement. So now I want to get to when they are in the subway and she is like checking her messages. And I want to talk a little bit, because we always talk on the podcast about like we want to be surprised. And I kind of want to explain how this is a perfect example for us to look at in terms of why this isn't surprising. So she's looking at her phone, looking for text messages from PAX. And then the friend says, if you're waiting to hear from that guy PAX again, you should probably play it cooler. And I'm like, so obvious that the friend would think that she's looking for the text messages. And even if it's like, that is a common thing that would have happened in a friend situation on the page, it just comes off so obvious. So, I want to talk a little bit about why we should always go for the most surprising choice, especially in opening pages and especially in this example. So I want to talk about, I'm going to give you a little fashion lesson here and a fiction lesson, so follow along with me here. So there's something in fashion called the wrong shoe theory. And the wrong shoe theory goes like this. There's a stylist, her name is Alison Bornstein, and she came up with this theory. And so the wrong shoe theory is, for example, if you are wearing a really kind of fancy-ish dress or like a maxi dress, the obvious thing to put on your feet would be high heels. The wrong choice to make would be to put on sneakers or runners or trainers, right? Whatever you call them. That's the wrong shoe theory because it makes for a more interesting outfit. So if you are wearing, for example, something that is a little bit dressier and you want to make the wrong choice, it would be, oh, putting on a bomber jacket or like a sporty baseball hat. That's wrong shoe theory. Or you're wearing, again, a really sporty outfit and then you pick like a really dainty handbag, right? So wrong shoe theory. And so I think we can also lend this to our fiction when we think about how can we use wrong shoe theory is whatever the most obvious choice is. So the obvious choice is for the friend to say, hey, you're texting that guy named Pax, What would be the wrong shoe theory to happen in this case, right? It would be her to say, oh, did you hear back from that job that you applied for? Even though the reader knows that she's trying to wait for the message from Pax, but the friend is saying about the job. Do you know what I'm trying to say? So how can we employ wrong shoe theory, obviously in your fashion lives as a bit of fashion advice for you, but also in our fiction lives, always using wrong shoe theory. So that's my advice for this one.
1: I am now obsessed with the wrong shoe theory in storytelling. Seriously, that was really good. Okay. We must, we must remember this avid listeners. Please remember this. I'll try to remember this too. All right. Now I'll read my query letter. Dear Ms. Lyra, thank you for taking the time on these critiques. I am amazed at what I've learned since discovering your invaluable podcast. I'm submitting my debut suspense thriller, Good Bones, complete at 98,000 words. It's told through dual timelines the multi-POV first person in the present, and the unfolding twists of the past through a third person POV. Good Bones is written in the vein of Tana French's character-driven suspense standalone, The Witch Elm, and the is-there, isn't-there paranormal elements of Julia Bartz's The Writing Retreat. Please note, there are elements of physical and verbal abuse which can be triggering. Jay and his wife Quinn return to the Montana town of his youth, which is also the college town where they met, for the funeral of Jay's estranged father. After the reading of the will, Jay is bequeathed to the shabby family cabin over his quiet, do-gooder brother Reed, who took care of their ailing and at times abusive father. To appease his wife and stabilize their shaky marriage, Jay agrees to stay and renovate the cabin. But a summer spent in the town Jay's been avoiding for 15 years begins to rip at the fragile seam of the life he's constructed. Over the course of June and July, old romances and grudges are reignited, Quinn struggles between Jay and lost love, Reed's remaining familial ties crumble, and Jay spirals as he's literally haunted by his past. These events are set in motion when Quinn discovers Jay has not only hidden a mysterious card left on a bouquet of funeral flowers that cryptically reads, Come back soon, but that he also had a close friend in college who vanished. By August, everyone is left questioning their version of the truth and protecting their own indiscretions as a mistake from the past is finally revealed and leaves everyone fighting for their lives. After spending seven years in LA's film and television industry, I have recently moved back to my college town in Southwest Montana, where I went to film school. Now I spend my free time soaking up nature walks, adventuring on rivers, and in the mountains, and allowing my writer brain the space to wander into dark, twisty, nostalgic places. Please see the first five pages of my writing below, and I would love to send you my full manuscript at your request. Sincerely, Mary Cardenas. And below, there's her social media handles. Thank you so much for that, Cece. So why don't you tell us how long it was and what you thought? So this is 397 words long. Okay, so what I thought. In terms of the first paragraph, we have multi POV first person in the present and then third person POV single third person POV in the past. Switching from first person to third person, that can easily be jarring. And I don't want agents to pass on this under that assumption. So to be honest with you, I would just remove first person and third person because we don't need to know that narrative style in the query letter. That belongs in the pages. We do need to know multi POV in the present and single POV in the past. That's fine. But we don't need to know that one is first and the other one's third. I just want to give you the best shot at attracting agents. And I worry that there'll be like a a misconception about this. You know, people might assume that it's... Because it's really hard to pull off. In terms of the plot paragraphs, there's a lot of names. And so when we get to words like June, July, August, because they could also be names, I would change that. I would say over the course of two months, instead of saying June and July, and instead of saying August, I would say soon. Because we don't need to know exactly what month all this is happening, right? So it just means less proper names in the query letter. I did not feel like the plot points were interconnected. I think it would be better to frame them in a dominoes tipping over sort of way. Our Kofi subscribers will see me highlighting the plot points and saying, I don't see how this is interconnected. Like I would like to see more causality. Also a question I have is why does it matter that he had a close friend who vanished? That would be relevant if someone else had vanished in the present and, you know, then she might think to herself, well, why do people keep vanishing around him? But that's just not enough for me to, for me anyway, to think that it's like a bombastic discovery. And also based on the query letter, I don't understand the need for two timelines. Like it just doesn't, I don't understand why, like I don't get what's happening in one versus the other that would require you to split the real estate between the two. And I loved the author paragraph. That was really sweet.
2: Thank you so much, Cece. So why don't you tell us what's happening in those pages?
1: So we have chapter one. Our 10-year-old protagonist is making waffles with his little brother, who's five. They make a big mess in the kitchen. A car is approaching and the protagonist knows they have to flee, but his little brother refuses. Don walks in as the protagonist is fleeing and the protagonist has to listen to him physically abuse of his little brother, essentially. And he runs away further once he can't stand to look anymore and tells himself his little brother won't remember this. His little brother won't remember this. And then we have chapter two, same protagonist, Jay, as an adult now, he's married, he's talking to his wife, and he's saying he's not going to go to his dad's funeral. We learned that he was listed as the beneficiary in the dad's will, but again, he's just not going to the funeral, and his wife wants him to.
2: And Cece, what was your analysis of those pages? Okay,
1: so I think I see what the author is going for. Like, it's quite the beginning, right? And it's very, very emotional. I gravitate towards books that deal with dark, with messy families. I don't usually shy away from books like this. And so I am, I think, your ideal reader. And for me, for my taste, in order for this to work, we need more depth in Jay's interiority. His interiority needs to feel more childlike, And needs, again, I'm going to repeat myself, more depth. Right now, it feels like he's keeping us at arm's length. A few questions I had that I think that I should know the answer to. Was this their first time making breakfast? Which would mean that he couldn't have anticipated that the waffles would explode. Did Jay think they had more time? And if so, why? Perhaps Don wasn't supposed to arrive home. Perhaps this was a big surprise. Did Jay at least try to physically remove his little brother from the kitchen? Like he's 10, his little brother's five. He should be able to like drag him given the danger. Why did he not specifically tell his little brother what was coming if he didn't leave? I assume that this is not the first time that Don has been abusive. And so his little brother would know. His little brother, if Jay said, XYZ is going to happen, you know, he's going to come, he's going to hurt you. Then why would he not say that to his little brother? What would happen if they had fled? Would Don simply have found them both and punished them both? Would the punishment have been worse for Jay? Does Jay remember being five since he's so intent on believing that his little brother won't? Has he ever taken the fall for his little brother in a previous episode? I guess I'm sharing all these questions because for me, both chapters, not just chapter one, and we get a little bit of chapter two, they are reading a surface level. I I think that we could go deeper. And when it comes to chapter two, I don't think that the story should start with them arguing about whether they're going or not. We know they're going. I think them arriving might make a more Im- of an impact. They can still be arguing, like I can't believe you dragged me to this, etc. But we know they're going to go, right? So right now, all it's doing is establishing argument between a couple, and that's just one layer. We need many more layers, I think, to really hook a reader in a new timeline. So I want to tell the writer, like, I I get what you're going for. At least I think I do. And I say go deeper. Because if that's the story you want to tell, if these are the elements you want to explore, then, then don't shy away from it. All right. Now we have a third query letter to read, which Carly and I will
2: both critique. Carly, do you want to read that for us? Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca. I love your show so much that I wrote a blog post on all the things I've learned from the three of you so I can go into detail and not have it count towards my query word count. I cannot thank you enough for all you do. I'm seeking representation for my novel, Nesting Season, a fast-paced mystery suspense complete at 98,000 words. A multi-POV standalone with series potential, set over the span of a single week in 2018, Nesting Season combines the taut pacing of Karen Catcher's river Bodies*, the small-town atmosphere of Lorith Ann White's Beneath the Devil's Bridge, and features a tenacious amateur female sleuth character like All the Good People Here by Ashley Flowers. Single mother and failed cop, Kate Fitzgerald, comes to sleepy Ravens Rock on a manhunt for her ex-fiance, Ryan, who emptied their bank account and abandoned her three weeks before, leaving behind nothing but an envelope postmark with the town's name. When 20-year-old remains of two teens are found in one of the town's old mine shafts, the woman whose handwriting was on the envelope turns up dead. Kate gets involved, thinking it might lead her to Ryan. Instead, she meets Matt Donahue, a police constable, determining to solve the crime, even if it means playing outside the lines, and she and her son Hayden move in with Cedric, an octogenarian with a passion for birds. But the bodies stir up more than just those interested in solving the murders. Kate and Matt track suspects through the town's maze of abandoned mine tunnels try to help Kendra, a troubled 17-year-old whose family seems linked to all of the crimes, and antagonize Roger, the local police chief who just wants to declare the case closed. But Ravens Rock hides secrets darker than three murders. Cedric knows more than he's telling and Kate can't stop keeping things from Matt, like why she's really in Ravens Rock. When Matt and Ryan are taken hostage, Kate and Hayden are shot at when Kendra goes missing, Kate has to figure out who the real criminal is and how much of her own truth she's willing to reveal. I'm a data analyst, researcher, and evaluator with a PhD in geography. I live in a small town in British Columbia where I ski, hike, write, and adopt too many pets. I have completed writing workshops and courses with writers such as Lawrence Hill, Marina Endicott, Stephen Heighton, and many others, and did a year-long manuscript intensive with the Humber School of Writers. My manuscript is available upon request. Thanks for your consideration. Name redacted.
1: Alright, so that one came in at 445 words. I'll go first, Carly, and then I'm super curious to hear what you thought. So for me, as I was reading it, I was like, okay, this is very intriguing. And I can see how the plot points are coming together with clear causality. The other query letter I critiqued, I couldn't see the domino effect. I couldn't see that this causes that, which then causes this other thing. And this query letter is doing that really well. So for our Kofi subscribers, this is a really good opportunity for you to compare two query letters and to just really see examples of how causality matters. I thought that the plot was very interesting. And I especially liked that I could see how the various relationships dynamics could really up the tension and create memorable characters. Do I think this query letter could be tighter? Yes. 445 words is on the longer side. But listen, I'll be honest, the job of a query letter is to make me want to read the pages and this makes me want to read the pages. So good job. Carly, what do you think?
2: All right. So I really liked this title, nesting season. I had to think about it a bit though, because I'm like, okay, nesting is in nest. And then the octogenarian character has a passion for birds and where's birds coming into this. But I don't know. I nesting is also like, you know, you nest kind of when you're moving into a new place or when you're expecting a new baby, right? This idea of nesting and like making a home. I thought that was a bit of a contrast though, because she's moving to a new place and it was really just to hunt down the ex-fiance. So I don't know, I guess it's a curious title, right? I'm asking, I'm asking lots of questions here, which I think is interesting. So Karen, Karen Catcher is one of my clients, and so sometimes when I'm like, I see a client comped, I'm like, is this person just dropping a client's name or is this actually a good comp? I think Karen is an excellent comp for this, so I think you made a really great choice there in terms of Karen Catcher, River Bodies, and a lot of Karen's work, I think, would be a great comp here. So I think the book itself is pretty long. This is multi POV, which means there's a lot of kind of character arcs we need to build out and multi-plot lines. It is pretty long for a mystery suspense, is what this person called it, because you're going to be up against other suspense or mystery novels that are much closer to 80,000 words, if not sometimes like 75. So this is definitely on the long side, which just, again, makes me curious about like how much plot is happening here. It seems like there's a lot, a lot of plot. My big question with a premise like this is, is what's at stake, right? Because... I always think about this. Like, why can't she just grab her son and run in the other direction, start the car, and don't look back? Right? Like, what is it that she needs from this ex fiance? I understand that it's money, but like a scrappy female character like this, why can't she just up and move to a new town or a new state, you know, a new country and just like start over, you know? I really want to know why she needs to connect with him and what the secret is to make it so clear that what's at stake is that like, she has to go to this town. It's this town of all towns, right? So that level of intensity really needs to be dialed up for me to really kind of understand why I need to read this book.
1: That's very interesting. I just assumed it was the money. I thought that they wouldn't have enough money to start over since he took everything. Now I'm curious. Now maybe writer, if you're listening to us, post on social media so we know. (laughs) Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and summarize what happens in the opening pages. So for chapter one, we have the protagonist arriving in town with her son, thinking about her ex. She still wears her engagement ring and she's not sure why she does it. She's not entirely sure whether he did this on purpose or not the leaving them with the money she's telling herself maybe it was on purpose maybe it wasn't she sees a poster of a missing girl and that feels eerie for her and then chapter two we have kendra with her classmate felix who's popular and hot they're in high school and felix wants her to participate on a prank during this field trip And, you know, Kendra isn't loving the idea of it, but she feels like she has to because she feels pressured. Carly, what did you think of the execution? I'll go next this time.
2: All right. So I thought it was really interesting that our main character talks at her son and the son never seems to communicate back. And I got the sense it was kind of like a surly teenager thing. It kind of like he's, you know. Got his hoodie up and just kind of keeping to himself so it was interesting because it's like she's starting dialogue like she is talking and therefore communicating to the reader and we can understand through dialogue through her that something's happening but it just falls flat because the dialogue isn't received by anybody so it just kind of seems like she's talking to herself but there's no self-awareness that this character even acknowledges that her son's not listening I don't know I just found that a bit interesting to me wouldn't you be like And my son's ignoring me again, or did he fall asleep? Or just some sort of like cue of the dynamics between these two? Because what I found kind of interesting in the query letter is that the son is mentioned but this isn't really like a mother son on the run type of story in a way that like that's an interesting hook and I think that could totally be elevated because if he is a teenager he's obviously still a child but he's not like a fragile like toddler where it's like you know she has to be the one that like has to save them like a teenage boy could be taller than his mum you know what I'm trying to say like I just think there's an interesting maternal relationship here that's just not being explored in a number of ways because this, if this is the ride or die right like her her son ride or die it just to me just there's just so much potential in this in this dynamic that is just yet to be explored. my other note is around our Kendra character so in chapter two we move to another POV it comes off super young super young POV right because not only is she in high school where she definitely sounds like she's in high school so I'm kind of curious about how much time do we spend with this character was this book for? I start to kind of ask myself some questions about that. So that was, those were my ideas. Cece, what did you think?
1: I'm not sure it's starting in the right place, either chapter, because for – this was pitched as fast-paced mystery suspense, and so I feel like we need just a lot more stakes. The scene of her in the car with her teenage son, I didn't feel desperation. I didn't feel the financial angst that I had assumed I'd feel based on the query letter. Here's an example. She's still wearing her engagement ring and she's just kind of like contemplating, you know, why she still wears it. What could it be? Whereas in my opinion, a person who's desperate would be like, I can sell this and I can get money because I need money desperately. I also thought it was odd that she wasn't thinking about how the fiance disappearing was affecting the son. Like, were they close? Is this the only father figure he knew? There's just so many layers there that I thought could be explored from a relationship driven story element. But more importantly, given the uh, writer's intention here of a fast paced suspense and mystery, like I don't think that driving in the car, you know, arriving in town, being like, is he here? Is he not? I just don't think that that's landing. And one note I have that I feel very strongly about, so I really hope the writer will, will will agree with this one, is she needs to be sure that this guy is a dirtbag who took her money. The whole, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, I do not believe. Like unless there's a very good reason for her to not be sure and we didn't see one. Like this needs to be woman on a manhunt. That is the term that is used in the pages, manhunt. So like let's see her hunting the man, you know, like I could get behind that. I really liked that the author found some really great ways to weave in information that did not feel info dumpy. I highlighted them and I was like, this is masterful. Like a beginner writer would typically be namesplaining here or be adding this without any type of interiority or emotionality. So so there's a lot here that's working really well. I just think that her, her being the protagonist's state of mind needs to be way more on the manhood side of things as opposed to the contemplative side of things. All right. Well, that's it for today's Books with Hooks. We hope to see you next week.
2: The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app we have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started for a very limited time. The shit no one tells you what writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off that we want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to CarlyWaters.com/slash course to learn more and use discount code pod15 for the month of April at checkout. That's pod pod fifteen at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course.
0: Today's guest is the author of nine novels, including Two for the Road, Instamom, and Stuck in Downward Dog, which are for adults, and then the Pippa Green YA series. She has worked as a beauty expert on Canada's number one daytime talk show, The Marilyn Dennis Show, and as an editor of various magazines. She lives in Toronto with her family. Find her on Instagram and TikTok at Girton, that is H A N. T-E-L-G-U-E-R-T-I-N, which we will link to in the show notes. Chantal, welcome to the show. Thank
3: you so much, Bianca. I'm so excited to talk with you today.
0: It's wonderful having you on the show. Chantal and I have done some events before in the past, but getting to chat to her now specifically about her holiday rom-com, It Happened One Christmas, is really, really exciting. So tis the season. We've had two back-to-back holiday rom-com authors that we're interviewing. And I think it's pretty apt because we're seeing a huge rise in the popularity of this genre. So Chantal, can you work us through kind of your transition from your usual books to the holiday rom cup.
3: This is sort of one of those stories that I think maybe authors dream of because, you know, as your listeners know, getting published can be so difficult and lots of querying. And I was at the Doubleday offices meeting with my editor and the publicity and marketing team to talk about Two for the Road, which came out earlier this year. and. It was so great to go in person after two years of talking and promoting books, you know, virtually. And they had said, if you want to come in, come in. They were like, if you don't. And I was like, of course I want to come in and meet in person. So that was great for me. But we were walking to the elevator afterwards, my editor and I, and she said, what are you working on next? And I had really just finished Two for the Road. And I was like, oh, I don't know. You know, you could always have like 17 ideas about what was going to be next, right? So she said, Well, have you ever thought about a Christmas romance? And I said, I have now. And she said, Think about it. You know, that would be really fun. And I went home, I rode a bike home. I was like, That would be really fun. And I just felt super inspired. I thought, This is a great opportunity to write a Christmas rom com that is set in Canada. And I'm French Canadian by background. So I thought, oh, you know, I don't, that doesn't feel super common. I I haven't read another Christmas rom-com that would have those traditions. And so I sat down that night and my husband and I often brainstorm all of my books out and we stayed up late. We hashed out the entire plot, wrote the outline, and I sent it to my agent the next day. And my editor called me like a day later and she said, Have you thought about that idea for a Christmas rom com? And I said, like, which also that never happens, right? That your editor just calls you and like, hey, do you have that book idea? And I said yes, and I sent it to my agent. Like, let me call her because I'm sure she doesn't think this is urgent, like sitting in her inbox. And within the week, I had a deal. So that was just so great and so fun to think I would have. The, the twist of that was that I thought I would have till next year, because books take a year to write usually. And she said, we need the book in two months if we're going to have it come out in October 2023. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, But that was a gift. You know, you say like, don't turn it into something terrible. I was like, what are the odds? I'd have two books coming out in the same year. Like, and it was just so fun to write that book.
0: You sound just like your character Zoe now because in the book, Zoe goes, let's reframe things into positives. She talks about her therapist saying, don't put this as a negative, reframe it into a positive. I must be honest, if I was told I had to write a book in two months, I don't know where I would find the positive, but it's amazing that you did. Let's talk about what that process looked like, Chantal, compared to your other books. How the hell do you write such an incredible book in two months? So
3: immediately... I knew, I already knew that the book would be set in Chelsea, Quebec, because, you know, we had sat there and looked at a map and thought, where could this be set that will still feel like it is realistic for the characters to speak English? I don't want to get into like, what language are they speaking in this book? And Chelsea, Quebec is this adorable little town that I had been to just outside of Ottawa in Ontario. So very easy to get to, would feel realistic for a Hollywood film director to be going here and a funny thing I thought was that it made sense why there was that sort of quick timeline for it because there was a mix-up of Chelsea right so you could Chelsea the neighborhood in London Chelsea in New York Chelsea Quebec so anyways I immediately got online and looked where can we stay booked a hotel and called the grandparents to come and take care of our children and my husband and I left and went the next weekend and my goal was to have basically the chapter outline done before we left so that I would have a better sense of what was going to happen once we got there and but that was all I didn't have any of the book written because I was really trying to do a lot of other work before we left And my goal there was to write half the book in one weekend, and that's 40,000 words. And that is what I did. (laughs) I thought if I can get that done, then when I get home, each day I can go back to what my normal pace is, which is maybe a thousand words a day. And I would be fine because I would still have 40 days (laughs) to write the book. I had a little more than that when I got back. I think I had almost two months when I got back because I think the timeline really was two months. So I thought I can do this. And I love that there was no ability to say, oh my gosh, this is so terrible. Oh my God, how am I ever going to write this? I'm such a bad writer. Like, you know, the spiral that we do as writers, even though obviously we know how to write books, we are writing them. Like this is my ninth book. Like surely at some point I should think I know how to write a book, but I always do that. There was no time for that. I was like, nope, mm -mm. there is no negative self-talk happening, just positive words on page. So
0: I love that. So for our listeners who have, you know, the doubts and who have the imposter syndrome, maybe this is the way to write a book. You just do it really fast and don't give yourself time to second guess everything. Something I wanted to ask you about for this book, Chantal, was the research it took. So for our listeners, we have Zoe, who's our main character, who's written a script for a Christmas holiday movie. And then also she goes to Chelsea so that she can scout it out and get permission to film in different places there. And she has to do a really quick turnaround because the company made a mistake. The guy who was scouting locations thought it was Chelsea, New York. So she doesn't have a lot of time. But there was an understanding there of how film works, how script writing works, how scouting and directing works. Is this knowledge you already have? Or was this stuff you had to learn while you were writing this book? I did not have this knowledge
3: at all. I mean, I watched lots of Hallmark Christmas movies. And and I think I'm very interested in that. I listened to a great podcast called Happier in Hollywood, which is to writers in Hollywood. So I, I hear, even though I have no, you know, intention of being a scriptwriter, I love hearing about the industry. And I did a little research to realize that this would be believable that you would have to talk to the mayor of a small town because for any of the filming that happens on the main streets, that would be the town giving the permission versus maybe businesses or people's houses, or that could be individual. So uh, that really worked as a plot. And once I had that, because of course, you're right, you can get really stalled as a writer, when you've got this idea, and then it has to feel realistic, like, would this happen? So that once I knew that, I thought, okay, this is perfect, and really worked, because I wanted a small town. And I wanted that whole Christmas feeling. And I wanted a place that actually got snow at Christmas, because a lot of Sometimes we read these Christmas rom-coms and they're not always set in a wintry place. And I wanted that wintry feeling.
0: Yeah I always laugh in Toronto because it generally happens in the middle of summer when I'm out walking Muggle in the park. It is beastly hot and here's always a film crew who's trying to blast fake snow all over the park to create this wintry landscape and these poor actors are in holiday coats and gloves and mittens. Meantime it's 40 degrees out and I'm just feeling for them. So when I was reading yours I was like that makes a lot more sense. You're right. And I
3: think you're right too. Like that is what happens a lot of times that the filming does happen in the off season. And so I also want to make sure. So Zoe's job, is a holiday film director and they are filming and writing all year round. So I thought that could also feel really believable that she would be doing this in December, not in July.
0: Yeah. But, and it was so believable because there were parts where she looks at the bar and she goes, okay, we can move chairs back so we can frame the scene this way. And she's looking at each scene through the way a director would. And guys, this is something we say on the podcast all the time is that, your character's perspective needs to convey so much about them. The way they see the world needs to be the way that character will see the world. Keeping in mind their occupation, their interests, their levels of expertise. You know, as I've said before, someone who's really into fashion will walk into a room and notice the designer labels that people are wearing or the purses that they have. Someone who is interested in books will walk into a room and notice the books on the shelves, etc. So you can't have someone who's totally clueless, about fashion, walking into a room and naming the brand of shoes someone's wearing, for example. And what Chantal did so wonderfully with this book in terms of every time Zoe walked in somewhere, her description of the setting was not just, oh, here's a bar, here's a whatever. It was a description through the lens of someone who was wanting to use this space in her movie and was therefore describing the pros and cons of the space as how it would pertain to the filming. And that's another way to do characterization, right? It's another way to really make your characters come alive. Can you speak a bit about that, Chantal?
3: Yeah, you make a really good point. You do have to see it through the character's eyes. And so I think it is important to make your characters sort of have jobs that you are interested in. So for me, I think I was able to do that pretty well because I worked in television for so long. So on the other side, on air, but I know things like, you know, what background looks good where the lighting should be, what kind of clothes you should wear and shouldn't wear. And so that was easy to draw upon. But I often think when I'm writing, I try to put myself in the shoes of that character and do that in my everyday life. So for me, actually, descriptions would be my hardest thing. And I think this is good to know if you're a writer. Like, you don't have to be good at all the parts. I oh, I love the dialogue. The dialogue is my favorite. And when I'm having a really hard writing day, I just write the dialogue. And I tell myself, you know what? I'm going to describe it all later when I have a little bit more time to just think into it and tell myself that's what I'm going to be working on today. So That is not my strength, so I have to really work at it. So I try to make sure that even as I go about the rest of the day, maybe my writing is done, then my little challenge to myself is, okay, if I was this character, exactly what you said, Bianca. When I walk into a room, how do I see it? What would I be thinking? And if you do that, you can often kind of get inspiration for scenes that you can add to the book and add those layers, right? So that you're really taking from your own experience because you're thinking like the character.
0: Yeah. And I love what you said about how you don't have to be good at all the things. So I'm the same. I'm terrible at writing setting and scene. I also love the dialogue, but I know writers who are like, oh my God, the dialogue. So they'll put a little placeholder there. Write five paragraphs of witty banter. But then they'll go back to all the scene setting, etc. And then they'll come back and really sit and agonize over the dialogue. And, you know, for our listeners, each writer's process is different. Some writers will immediately in the first draft lean into the things that they're really good at and then come back and focus on the things they're not good at. Some will sit and agonize when they get to the parts they're not good at and they refuse to carry on until they've managed to get that done. But, you know, this from a very seasoned writer, that not all writers are good at everything. And it's important to know where your strengths are, but it's also really important to know where your weaknesses are so that you can really focus on those and, you know, sort of grow as as a writer. Something that I wanted to ask as well, Chantal. so I was chatting with a, another editor about holiday rom-coms and they said something about you want the two characters, you want the love interests to meet as soon as possible within the first five pages and you don't want a character who's just coming out of breakup because you don't want them to be all morbid and depressed, etc. And I kind of hated that because I was like, well not all characters are going to meet immediately. And I want to get to know the character on their own before I see them reacting to a love interest, you know. And so what I love about your book is we meet the love interest on page 31, which is not the first five pages. And the character is coming out of a breakup and is a little bit heartbroken, not to the point where it's debilitating and she's lying in bed sobbing hysterically. But tell us a bit about, you know, sort of breaking those rules as well.
3: That's interesting advice, and I can totally see that. And actually, when I think back to traditional romances, I used to, my one of my very first jobs was being a proofreader for Harlequin Romance, and that was one of the things you had to check for, like, do the characters meet on page three? And if it's pushed to page four, you had to flag it so that the editor could fix that with the writer. So, you know, there was a very a formulaic concept. So I think that what I like to see is that character in their setting. So we want to see the world that they live in, get a real sense of who they are, because you want to see what's going well and what's not, because it's not always going terribly with the main character. I love a strong female character. And that's I always try to write strong female characters. They are not these bumbling idiots who have to be saved by a man for all their things in their life to work out. So I love romance. And I think, That brings me such joy to see that in the novel, but I want the the character to already be successful and happy. And she's not just like sad waiting for a man. So if you put them in their real world, so for me, it was Zoe showing her in her life, doing a great job at work. And what you see a little instance of what the issue is, okay, sure, she's had a breakup. But what you learn from that is, That that guy, she was really making it work, but a lot of her life was stalled because they actually weren't a great fit. So yeah, she's like disappointed in the breakup in the kind of way that you're disappointed when something ends that you put all this effort into. But what that allowed for her is to realize, but he was holding her back from so many things in her life. And she's very successful at work. She's had a small hiccup because this film is not going to get made if they don't get the permit. And we know why that is so important. She does tons and tons of films, but this was her first film that she had written the script for. And it was basically bringing back this perfect Christmas she had with her parents and her sister. And what you learn is that, you know, she doesn't have that family anymore for different reasons. So she's trying to get that feeling back. So you have this real, okay, we can see it's not just I've got to go find that man and be happy, right? She doesn't even know that's an element of this story for her. She's trying to capture this feeling that she wants in her heart. And we want her to get that too.
0: Yeah, what Chantal's saying here, and that I think our listeners can take away from, one, we get the stakes up front, and that's so important. Why is this important to the character? What will happen if they don't get this thing they want, right? This is her first film. It's really important to her that she gets she gets to direct this film. So straight away we understand the stakes. We're on board with her, but there's that personal universal element as well in terms of her wanting to go back to Chelsea because this was the last place that she had a really special Christmas before her family split up and before all these things fell apart for her. And that's something a reader can get on board with immediately in terms of a character saying this was the last place I remember having this amazing experience before this holiday was kind of ruined for me forever. So we've got the personal universal element and we've got the stakes up there as well. And as well, you know, when this breakup happens again, Zoe reframes. She goes, well, I could think that I'm alone for Christmas or I could think this guy who broke up with me has actually given me the opportunity to be free and not be in this relationship where I have to work so hard. And why I keep bringing it back to Zoe reframing things is the way a character thinks tells us so much about them. We get this optimism about her. And just once or twice, seeing her reframe negative things into positive ways helps us get on board with her specifically so that we know this is Zoe. This is not just any character in any novel. It's such an important part of who Zoe is. And that kind of specificity makes us latch onto her even more and go, oh wow, this is Zoe, we really love Zoe. Speaking of specificity as well, Chantal, I want to discuss tropes in in rom-coms because readers are expecting tropes. So for example, in this book, one of the main ones is we've got Grumpy Sunshine. He, Ben, is quite grumpy and Zoe's super sunshiny and, you know, really optimistic, etc. So what is your advice to people who are writing in the romance genre how to balance the tropes which readers expect but to still give such a unique take on the story that it differentiates itself from other stories in the genre? That's a
3: great question. And I know, I think, you know, tropes is that thing we always talk about with romances. And I think the way I try to look at them is it's useful because it is causing your conflict, right? So you want there to be some tension with the characters, which is going to propel the story forward. So I think that's what you should focus on. Like where can the tension come? The other trope that I use is also the forced proximity because they are sort of forced together, but in a more natural way. So they are on this sort of journey together. There is an ice storm. They're in a car together. But it's not, i have read a a book before where they're like, the entire book is trapped in a car, you know, so they're not like, and I didn't want them to be snowed in necessarily. So you're using it, but you're like, how could this be fresh and feel like it's part of the story and causing the tension, but it's not the whole story. Because I think that's where you'll start to probably get a little bit of writer's block because you're just like you know you force them into this cabin like what's going to happen right so I think you can always think how do you keep the plot moving forward and then I love the grumpy sunshine because or the enemies to lovers sort of because I think it creates some good witty banter because you're playing with that and they don't like each other but originally I had Zoe sort of being the grumpy because I thought okay she does these Christmas movies but like She doesn't like Christmas because she has this ex-boyfriend who never celebrated Christmas. She has no family to celebrate Christmas. So wouldn't that be a great sort of juxtaposition of her character? And then Ben just loves Christmas. And he would show her the town and be like, Christmas is so wonderful. Like, look at how great it is. But then I realized we have to root for Zoe. So like, you don't want her to be grumpy about Christmas. Like, Christmas is the... Why we read these Christmas rom-coms too, I think, is that this feeling that no matter what's going on in your life, you know, there's going to be this like kindness that brings out the best in people. So I was like, that's the character we want to root for. We want her to be like, even despite everything going on, she's a happy person. She's like being positive. And so she had to be our sunshine. And then I thought, okay, Ben can sort of be the grumpy that has reasons for it and can sort of turn around. So I think that you know, sometimes you can look at something the way you're doing it and then think, oh, what if I look at it in the opposite way? Does that work
0: better? I love two things you've said there. And just for our listeners, remember rom-com, romances and rom-coms aren't the only ones that have tropes. Fantasy is full of tropes. Thrillers are full of tropes. And, you know, as writers, we are not cheating by using those tropes. These tropes are there for a reason. In fact, if you are listening to what bookstagrammers are saying, follow a ton of bookstagrammers who are writing in your genre. And you will see that they will say, my favorite romance tropes are these ones. And I specifically look for books that have these tropes. Or my favorite fantasy trope is the love triangle or the chosen one, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, you lean into those tropes because that's how you find your your readers who really specifically love that. That's important. And another thing, what I love what Chantal just said is reframe, you know, just because you have an idea and that was your idea in the beginning doesn't mean you need to 100% commit yourself to that because I agree with her. Had she made Zoe grumpy, it would have been much harder for the reader to be rooting for her. But because she's so optimistic, because she's so driven, because she keeps reframing things in these positive ways, it does make you get all the feels for Zoe. You kind of like want to hug her and be like, oh Zoe, I'm sorry you had these terrible Christmases, but you're so nice. I want to be your best friend. So always think, how can you get the reader on board with the character as quickly as possible because they've got to be rooting for their character for 80,000 words. So how can you do that as quickly as possible? Chantal, before I let you go, I want to chat to you about your YA novels. We are trying to get more YA authors on the podcast. Somehow we don't get pitched many of them. So if you're a publicist out and you represent YA novels, whether they're fantasy or non-fantasy, please reach out to us. Next year, we are going to try and be a lot more mindful of getting YA authors on the podcast. How does that mindset differ when you sit down to write a YA compared to when you sit down to write a rom-com? Like, is it a complete hat change for you? You sit down and go, I'm wearing my YA hat now, and it's a very different approach. Or, you know, is it just a case of a good story well told?
3: I think it's exactly that. A good story well told. And I, for me, I always think, what is the right way to tell the story I want to tell? And so when I came up with the idea for the Pippa Green series, which originally was just a standalone book called The Rule of Thirds, I wanted to write a love triangle. And that's a a lot harder in a contemporary adult novel because then you get into affairs and cheating and, and you can do it. Of course you can. But the story I wanted to tell, I thought, I can do this so well if I write this for as for YA because of course this happens all the time right there's like oh the brooding guy and there's the friendly guy and they they brought out the best in the main character Pippa so that's exactly why I decided to just I thought this story is better told as a YA and that's why I did that and I think that's a good example of just tell the story you want to tell, because it will be so much easier. That series was so easy and so fun for me to write. And I wrote the first one. And my publisher immediately said, like, do you want to write a second? And if that's going well, do you want to continue it? And so that was just like, again, so great to have that and know that you could continue the story. So there's things you could wrap up, there are things you could think about in the way. But really, that was thinking about who is the best audience for the story I really want to tell.
0: Yeah, that's really true. And something we get a lot of questions on, and we get a lot of submissions from authors, you know, for our agents to take a look at. And we'll have characters that are like 14, 15 years old, but they're writing it more as adult fiction. And perhaps we'll look at it and go, you know, with this age protagonist, it might be better suited to be YA. And that's not to say that all novels that have got you know children in them as the main character should be YA so my debut novel had a 9 year old girl 10 year old girl and that was not YA that was more sort of book club fiction so for our listeners who are sitting there and going okay I've got a protagonist that that's this old is it YA or is it sort of book club fiction, or is it more something else? Is there like a rule of thumb, you would say, in terms of what would help you differentiate that? So for example, for me, although I was writing a 10-year-old girl, why I knew this wasn't really a children's story or a YA story is because her story was set to the backdrop of apartheid in South Africa. And the story was about much bigger themes in terms of white privilege, coming to grips with your own internal racism, the you know, the background of the country. And I had another character who was 50 years old, who was dealing with the fallout of apartheid. So these were sort of much bigger themes than more teenage themes. I think if she was grappling with friendships, for example, or her self image, for example, that would have made me want to frame it more as YA. But I don't know if that is the right answer necessarily.
3: I think that's a great answer. And that's so true. And another book that comes to mind is The Dutch House by Ann Patchett, which is told from the little boy's point of view. But this is not a children's book, right? Because he's telling the story of complex issues, a stepmother, this house that they all grew up in, what happened to their mother. So this is, you know, it really is an adult book. When I was writing the Pippa Green series, I think what I wanted to explore is the feeling of a death of a parent which of course you could deal with as an adult but when you are younger it is that feeling of how do you make that parent still feel like they're with you how do the choices that you make in life affect you know are you getting your parents approval even though they're gone and so when i was a teenager my mom died and i often thought about that you know i was dating a guy that she knew so do you stay with this guy because Your mother loved him and thought he was great for you. And if I broke up with him and tried to meet someone new, I would never know what my mom thought of him, right? So you have to deal with that. So in this, my series, it was the same. She was like, her father had died. Her father was a photographer. She wanted to be a photographer, but does she want to be a photographer? Because that's what her father was and that would keep his memory alive. And so those are the kind of things that I think, you know, you thinking, of, is this a teen issue? Would a teen relate to this? Or, you know, sort of a tween, I guess, but like thinking of those things and helping them navigate their own complicated feelings in that stage of life. So I think, think about that. If you were reading it, at what point of your life, what age would you get the most out of this story? I think that could tell you who your ideal audience is.
0: Yeah, yeah, very true. And, you know, we're not in any way saying that YA does not grapple with very serious issues. We're not saying middle grade doesn't grapple with very serious issues. I mean, one of my favorite middle grade books is From the Desk of Zoe Washington, which is about a young girl who finds out that you know, her incarcerated father is sending her letters, which her mother is intercepting, so she doesn't get the letters. And those are obviously huge, really important issues, but it is in how you want to frame it and, you know, the focus of the story that that you want to tell. Chantal, our time is up. Thank you so, so much. This has been such an amazing discussion. For our listeners, this book is coming out on the 31st of October. So you have the opportunity to pre order it. Now, remember, pre orders are so important to authors. It helps bookstores figure out how many copies they're going to put on their shelves. It helps the publisher figure out how many copies they're going to print. So go to our bookshop.org affiliate page. It happened one Christmas. Click on pre order. For Chantal, you support an indie. You support Chantal, and you support us in the process. It is an absolutely delightful holiday read and there's just so much to unpack in it, even if you're not a rom-com reader or even if you're not enamored with Christmas, there's there's a lot to take away from it. Chantal, we hope to have you back for the next one.
3: Thank you so much, Bianca. This was so much fun. I love chatting with you.
0: And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.